Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. In this podcast where we spin just about anything. Spin just about anything. Records, lies, propaganda, webs. We are the spinsters, the, the old crones, unmarried. And uh, yeah, that's the summary of our lives. It's all you need to know. Hello, did you go? I'm here. Oh. <laughs> I because I hear you silence and there's no like background yeah. noise or anything like that. I couldn't that. think of any spin puns to add on to that. There, that's pretty much all of them. Unfortunately, spin is not very conducive to puns. It just it's just spin. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks to be us. Yeah, we're already we've already run out of uh, clever uses of the word spin in episode six. I'm sure we'll like come up with something. Yeah. Besides, that's not limited to the that's not the limits of our intellect. Yeah, not yet. Yeah, we'll get there, though. There's yeah. not a whole lot. Like, there's not a big threshold there. But anyway. Oh, yeah. So uh, I wanted to say, before we get into the meat of the podcast, then I uh, have had a good day singing. Uh, it is not a good day to be my neighbors. You know, hearing some guy in some apartment sing at the top of his lungs about old men becoming uh, OnlyFans simps. Uh, it is not a pleasant experience. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. But on the other hand, it is my best vocal performance yet on that track. And this is technically also the announcement that you are writing a musical. Don't 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 reveal the name. The name okay. is the, the, okay. The name is the crux of it. Okay? okay. So I had an idea. It's in the style of The Simpsons, where it is about a father who. Uh, falls down the rabbit hole of OnlyFans and uh, um, Chatterbait and all these other like lascivious websites and just is kind of consumed by that. And uh, his sons are the ones who try and help him out of this hole that he has dug himself in. And the show is called The Simps Sons. <laughs> it's, it's a classic idea where you come up with the title first. And I think the, the best title, ideas come title first. The title is the ju- the title is the justification for that. I was thinking about the same thing with Symphony, but uh, yeah, but I think Symphony was different, right? You would come up with the idea first, and then I yeah, came, I think uh, you you did come up with the title though, if I'm not mistaken. The, yeah. the premise of the story was that uh, it was a short story about Beethoven and the guy that actually writes Beethoven's symphonies because Beethoven is deaf. But he assumes that he's a really good uh, composer, but he can never hear them. So it's actually just some guy, uh, kind of like that uh, the fairy tale where it's like there's a shoemaker, and he's got like elves that live in his house, and they come out at night and finish the shoes for him. Yeah, kind of like that, but Lord with of the Beethoven. Rings. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's basically like that, but with Beethoven. And then you came up with the title Symphony. That was. Which I, which is the, the the best part of the story. I know. that Before I came up with uh, The Simps' Sons, 
<laughs> that was probably my my crowning achievement was Symphony. And I think yeah. your your uh, creative writing teacher even liked it as well. So she wrote ha yeah. beside it. Yeah. I remember because that was my greatest, like, I didn't even know her, but like, I was That was able your best to... school achievement of your life. I was, was me getting a ha on my paper. <laughs> I was able to reach out and touch her. Did you have anything? Okay, so uh, we've kind of like diluted all of our other usual segments because we have a mm -hmm. big segment planned, but I do kind of want to do like a little bit of news and commentary. Yeah, I do have a few news items. Okay. But should we talk about what today's episode surrounds? Yeah, so we're doing um, a film score-based episode. We, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, film music, not necessarily exclusively film scores. We're going to talk about TV scores and mm -hmm. songs written for film. So it's not and, so and even songs used in films that aren't original to the film for certain circumstances. Songs that have the title of the film in them. Exactly. Songs that are uh, written specifically for the film or uh, that have surpassed the fame of the film itself to be exactly. songs more famous than the film. I, I think we, we mostly talk about that. The reason why we're doing it is because uh, film composing giant Ennio Morricone recently passed away. Which I believe is our first real piece of news is that he passed away. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, yeah. well, well he was an old, old guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. he had done a lot of shit in his lifetime too and he kept working until the very end. So that was that's pretty admirable, I think. So like, people who, who don't know him by name, he's uh, composed music for a lot of films. Uh, do you have any of his credits to share? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the biggest one would be The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is a Sergio Leone film. Well, he actually mm -hmm. did a, like probably like the most famous Sergio Leone films, all the 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 Fistful of Dollars trilogy. Fistful yeah. of Dollars, a few dollars more, and then uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And then he did... Uh, he did. He, he done do... Uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and also mm -hmm. uh, later on, Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, what else did he... And also recently he's been scoring a lot of high-profile Tarantino films like yeah, Hateful, Hateful Eight. Eight. And I think Jinx. he contributed some stuff to Django Unchained as well. Yeah, that that makes sense. Because it's uh, I, I, uh, I watched Hateful Eight and didn't realize it was uh, was this guy. Yeah, um, but I can definitely hear it. Thinking back to it, uh, from my limited understanding of what his his contributions to films, I don't think I've actually seen any of the films you mentioned, even the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I know the music to good, the the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Um, but he is probably the main person I think of when I think of that music style of the uh of that uh, of the spaghetti western genre yeah i mean he was an important figure i think in the development of the film score genre um he kind of paved the way for the epic film score to kind of come into what it currently is he was a big inspiration for people like hans who we'll talk about all of his scores kind of like ooze that big kind of swelling kind of epic sound there was an interesting circumstance around me discovering uh, the the death of Ennio Morricone was that um, I was looking up. There had been somebody who had won a competitive Oscar recently, and they were like the oldest person ever to win a competitive Oscar. And then the person before them to have won a competitive Oscar at the like the oldest age to have won that award was Ennio Morricone, and he was eighty nine at the time or something like that. And mm. that was for the Hateful Eight. I think he's only won one competitive Oscar, and then before that he had received a 
Like an um, honorary. An honorary. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's the way I found it. And then it was like the, the, the minute that I found that, it was literally like five minutes after he had actually passed away that I had found out about that because I went onto his IMDb page and it was like Ennio Morricone passed away whenever, a few days ago. Yeah. Well, wasn't it the day that you were searching that that he died? Yeah, that's what I that's what I'm saying. That's like oh, when, I thought you said a few days passed since then. Oh, I mean, like a few days since now. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Unfortunately, uh, yeah. So I had another piece of news. Do you know? What, I mean, like, did you want? I've wanna... got some news as well. Yeah, but... you go for it. Actually, okay. I'm still kind of thinking about how I want to phrase this. It's funny. Yeah. Um. This one isn't funny, unfortunately. Uh. This one. Uh. Uh. The actress. Naya Rivera, she was on the TV show Glee, uh, which is a very music-focused television show. Yeah. Uh, and she's also uh, released an amount of music since being on the show. Uh, but a couple days ago, she went missing when she was on a boat with her son. And uh, this afternoon, her body was found and she is no longer alive, which is Shit. very tragic. She was in her early 30s. But yeah. She's the second person... Like a high-profile actor, I can't remember who the first person was, but they were, they were an actor, I think, and singer, and they were found dead. Like it was way back in like 2012 or something like that. I can't remember. The, the one guy overdosed from drugs. I'm pretty sure from Glee. You mean? Yeah. He. She's actually the third. There was the first guy. The actor's name, I think, it was Corey Monteith. Yeah, that's him. Uh, and he was he was Finn on the show. I've uh, full disclosure. Glee is like a guilty pleasure from back in the day, where it's like kind of a. It's the kind of show that I've I've been rewatching it recently before actually uh, any of this stuff was happening. Yeah. Um. But uh, it's kind of the a good trash background show. Like uh, there's a lot of shows that I just fully admit are pure trash, but are good for background viewing. Yeah. Uh. And Glee also has a lot of, like that. Probably when I was when I at least seen the first couple seasons on TV was my main access to more recent pop music because i wasn't really like a pop music fan but yeah uh cory monteith he died of an overdose and then uh even more tragic slash not good was another actor on the show i can't remember what his name is but he played the character puck where he was uh arrested for having child pornography and then uh, i think he was sentenced to prison but then he killed himself shit man glee will fuck you up yeah and now uh naya rivera has passed away from an apparent accident but there's not really any information about um anything like that so if you've been on that show you're fucked uh, your days are numbered man well i was gonna say uh take care of yourself and uh <laughs> try and and stay healthy stay uh stay connected to the world uh you know uh you know uh reach out for help and that kind of stuff but yeah as aiden said it you're fucked <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know Try to be a little more discreet with your child porn. You know, you can encrypt it. You know, put no. it on an encrypted drive or something. No. <laughs> Don't look at it. Don't have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something a like joke that. that I won't even participate in. Uh, I don't want to end up on any list. I'm any government list. surveillance. I'm, I'm somehow on the NSA watch list, even though I'm not even American. So, yeah. Do you have any more uh, uplifting news or comedic news, as you had alluded to? Well, yeah. Uh, okay, so on Twitter, um, I you know I I really don't really fuck with Twitter. Twitter is kind of boring, but you know I go on Twitter and 
every now and then you look at the right hand column which has the trending topics and mm. uh one of them is well i mean like in any given day somebody will be canceled and the trending topic will be hashtag uh whoever is over Blank is right? over party. yeah and the other this one was uh, uh harry styles and uh i mean i don't really uh have any affiliations with harry styles in any way uh, i guess i guess he's kind of cute but i mean other than that um uh, so uh, that that was the only reason I was curious because like why would they cancel this objectively Such a cute boy? Yeah, they, why would they cancel this objectively cute male? Uh, and yeah. so what? And apparently is that a lot of the people who are canceling them are so-called K-pop stands uh, and mm. who have like offended their sensibilities or something like that. And I have this theory that the Korean government are using these K-pop stands, quote unquote, in order to undermine the american music industry in order to mm. and so they're, they're going after the high profile pi uh, figures within the american mu music industry yeah you know uh I, I, i'm i'm on board for now like i i can i can see where the the uh, you know the the lines of thread are being connected well it's because uh k-pop is challenging the supremacy of american music in the global music industry i suppose so i mean like look at the 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 growing popularity of like bts and blackpink and all these other mm -hmm. you know k-pop groups right these uh you know it's it's becoming uh much more of a, a much less localized phenomenon right mm -hmm. so eventually you know as we go up, i think they're i think they're actually using underhanded tactics they are they are the russians of the music industry well i i remember uh it was a couple weeks ago now but I may be wrong about this, but wasn't it K-pop stands that uh, flooded the registration for a Trump rally to sell out the venue because there were free tickets? Yeah. So they're like anti-Russian. That's like weaponizing the K-pop army to, uh, I mean, I, I, was, I thought that was hilarious when they did it, but that's itself like a, a huge, essentially, army of online people to a single cause uh, as led by the, the K-pop influencers. So I'm, I'm as crazy as it is, I'm somewhat on board with your, uh, with your conspiracy theory. Yeah, it's, um, it's airtight. Um, and you know what? I think because of the uh, the recent success of the Russians undermining the 2016 general election, I think other uh, national or uh, other global superpowers have probably taken note of that and have probably been like, "Hey, you know what? We could probably fuck with them too, but we could fuck with the Russians by proxy, right? So like, mm -hmm. we're just we're just gonna you know side with whoever's you know against the Russians, you know? So they're probably just gonna." tacitly support joe biden just to fuck with uh, vladimir putin and you know what i'm on board with it yeah and i you know i don't if we know, weren't on don't care about that joe other biden. list already we're on a list now <laughs> with the, the government only, yeah well i mean like we've uh, we're on the list we've pissed off our local government we've pissed off the probably the american government uh interpol we've probably pissed off the russians because you know what i noticed that um uh, after we called out all of our russian sock puppet accounts they have fled from our subscriber list. So we are no yeah. longer supported by the regime of Vladimir Putin. So that that it is a sad day. It is a very sad day. Yeah. We've gotta uh we've gotta be local with our uh with our audience. Yeah. 
Except Canada kind of sucks, though. Well, I wouldn't say it go that far, but a lot of Canada sucks. Mm, like I like it. Montreal is okay, but that's pretty <laughs> much it. <laughs> <laughs> What's so special about Montreal? I don't know. It's like it looks like like uh, Europe, I guess. Yeah, I've never well, been to Montreal in my life. I I don't. But it looks I've like Europe, I hear. So Quebec City, and looks that's like why it, it doesn't suck. Yeah, because I mean Europe. Is nice. I go. Why does everybody go to Europe? It's because it looks nice. True. See, airtight. All of my theories airtight. Can't I've touch got. This. I've got one more news. Um, but it's 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 only like music adjacent, but it's more to to hopefully launch uh, an anecdote of yours. So Pick we've discussed this. Up. We've discussed this already, the two of us. Um, but a Fallout series is being developed. Uh, Fallout, the video game, is being adapted into a uh, Amazon Prime original series. I, I mentioned it as music news because uh, the Fallout series um, features a lot of music from sort of the 1950s era. Uh, probably the most yeah. well-known song associated with it is uh, the I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire song. Yeah. Uh, I think by... Uh, the, the Ink Spots or one of those types of bands. Yeah. I don't want to set the world on fire. That one? Yep. Yeah. And then uh, another famous one that uh, uh, ain't that a kick in the head, Dean Martin. That one's in there uh, in that game. So a lot of the music from that era. But I was hoping that you could tell on the podcast a music antidote that you shared with me involving the Fallout series. Wait, when was this? Wait, can you give me a clue? Because I don't even remember. You met the composer from the Fallout oh, games. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. You told me this like two days ago. <laughs> okay, this is it. This is kind of an interesting story. I probably will be, will be the only one who will uh, who will get a kick out of this because I was the only. Well, I mean, like my friends will probably get a kick out of this too. But so I met Fallout composer Enon Zur back in uh, 2016, 17. I can't remember which. But I was in uh, college. We were doing our uh, yearly trip to music in, or to, to um, Canadian Music Week, and uh, Enon Zur was one of the panelists, and he was talking about the uh, the process of composing for video games and how it's a completely different process altogether, and also just in general about composing for new media. And uh, I really wanted to see that because uh, he was the only. Well, I wouldn't say he was the only one, but he was probably the most high-profile composer there. So, uh, but what happened was that the night before, I had left my shoes in one of the... Uh, uh, actually, my shoes and my socks, too. Uh, I left my shoes and my socks in uh, one of our friend's rooms. And uh, I went there to, to retrieve my shoes and my socks, as one does when preparing to go to uh, a panel... Uh, where one intends to uh, see composer Enon Zur. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, they do. had left and had gone for breakfast. So there I was, kind of fucked. And so I decided, you know what, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, miss this opportunity. Um, if it means I'm going to walk around the conference hall looking like a homeless person, then that's fine. You know, uh, there's worse things to be than homeless. Uh, so what I did was uh, I, I went and... Uh, I, not only that, I had the opportunity to go up and ask Enon questions. Uh, you know, this is sort of like, I, I didn't really, uh, you know, converse with him. Uh, I was in a group of people who were kind of just riffing off one another. The same thing happened with George Strombolopoulos when I first came to music, uh, Canadian Music Week. I didn't really talk with him, so I can't really say. But I, I use it like I, I basically abridge that entire story and I say, 
by the way, I met Strombo, or by the way, I met Fallout composer Enonzer. Uh, and uh, what happened in this case was, um, I don't know, I just asked him a question about, uh, I don't know, what his favorite influences were. And I don't even think he noticed that I was wearing no socks and no shoes, but I noticed and everybody else noticed. So, uh, <laughs> and, and you know what? I didn't give a fuck. And, you know, since then, I probably have continued to not give a fuck about anything. That's true. And yeah. I think it makes the story a lot better that you weren't wearing socks and shoes. Yeah. Or else it's like, why would I want to hear a story about you meeting Fallout composer Enon Zer? It's like, well, I would like to hear a story about you not having socks and shoes and meeting Fallout composer Enon Zer. Yeah. Well, that first of all, um, it's a flex. Just like, just yeah. like mistake or just like lying and fabricating a story about how you met Strombo. Uh, and uh, it's a flex. I mean, uh, yeah. it's something that you can use to get laid or or just to seem more interesting. Or, uh, or those internet clouts, as they call them. Yeah. So yeah, Enon, technically a friend of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and here's Enon now. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I don't even know if he's, he's he's he sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess. Yeah. Hello. I made the wall out. <laughs> that didn't even sound like like uh, Schwarzenegger when I did it. I make millions writing Fallout music. I don't want to set the world on fire. <laughs> oh, we can my probably God. cut some of these if they're too much. Yeah, we're, we're, we're reaching a lot, but whatever. You know, it's good shit. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> uh, should we get into our, uh, our main segment of the show or pretty much the rest of the show? We should. We've got some spicy shit so far. Or yeah. not so far, but we've got some spicy shit right here coming up. Spicy shit. That is a tongue twister. So uh, do you want to begin? I mean, like, oh, wait, so what are we, we already talked about Ennio Morricone. Uh, yeah. We didn't I did want to talk a bit about the spaghetti Western genre as just like to go off of that 10 minutes ago tangent. Yeah. Because I, I actually watched a video about the music of spaghetti Westerns pretty much right before we recorded um, this podcast or started recording. So basically, uh, the spaghetti Westerns are obviously the, the more uh, Italian created Western films as opposed to the American Hollywood Western films. And in this video, I think it was by the channel, or no, it was associated with Reverb in some way, the the guitar-related company. And they talked about how the uh, the American Western films are all these big orchestral things, uh, whereas um, when uh, the spaghetti Western films were being made, they were a lot uh, lower budget. And then uh, the music as well had to also uh, be scaled down in that in a similar way. So a lot of the music features the primary instrument for a lot of them is more or less electric guitar. Yep. Uh, usually that uh, a twangy, almost surf rock like electric guitar sound where you've got the uh, the reverb on it, you got the uh, the uh, tremolo uh, tremolo bar, and you've got just that general twangy style. And then there'd be a lot of stuff that goes along in that music. Uh, sort of western type sounds where you've got like the uh the random gunshot or the the whip crack yeah uh, the jewish you, harp jewish harp is a big one too the jewish harp yeah the jewish harp is the one that makes that boing 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 sound okay yeah and then uh you've got almost like this uh uh galloping rhythm that goes with it that, that it it just feels very uh, it, it's 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 become the sound that you would associate with the old west now yeah like it's 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 to the point it was inspired by the western themes but now it is what it, like you can just add that music to something and it immediately becomes western so it's it's almost like surpassed the icon of what the western 
visual style or the Western era itself. It's it's that is the 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 it's it's sort of surpassed as the association to the Western genre. Yeah, it's cool because um, you, I mean, in addition to orchestra and all of your standard instrumentation for film composing, you do have all these other kind of ancillary instruments like like harmonica is another one you hear quite a bit as well. Yeah, basically, if if you want to, you know, really dive into the spaghetti Western genre, I feel like Ennio Morricone is just like the the best. Yeah, the quintessential the composer. Start. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, I've listened to the the music from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I've never even seen the film. I know I should see the film. I have it. I have it downloaded, ready to watch. But I haven't watched it. But I've listened to the music to that a lot. Yeah. Well, I actually, it's he uh, inspired. Uh, I mentioned that he he inspired Hans Zimmer, and you can kind of see mm-hmm. the 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 tendency towards big kind of uh, crescendos and big kind of uh, climactic payoffs as well in his music. So I, I I can't remember if he actually said he worked with Ennio Morricone on something, but. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I, and you mentioned earlier that he uh, his first competitive Oscar he won was The Hateful Eight, which came out like two years ago or something like that. Yeah, like uh, uh, 15, I think. But yeah, I, I'm glad that he won the sort of honorary one because it's a shame that a lot of his stuff, I guess maybe it, uh, I don't know if it just wasn't nominated for shit or if it just didn't. Uh, if it lost to other stuff, but his contributions to film scores in general, but also to entire era of film, he definitely deserves the recognition that he did get with the honorary award. But uh, it was it's surprising that he hasn't had as much. I mean, maybe he's won other awards and shit, but in terms of you know the Academy Awards and stuff like that being the biggest for film recognition. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was a technical thing. I know a lot of these films were produced by Italian companies, so it's possible that they were considered yeah. foreign films. Uh, I don't know. I mean, even yeah, though a, a lot of them had, uh, they probably were co-produced by some American production company, and they featured American talent as well. So I would, yeah. I would figure, I would figure that they would be um, at least nominated or, or considered for the pool of nominations. But uh, yeah, it looks like. The, his first nomination wasn't until 1979, uh, and that was way after a lot of his uh, more successful scores were written. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, like you, I'm surprised that somebody who is uh, you know, so widely uh, regarded and has uh, you know, such high renown amongst composers uh, hasn't won or had not won a score prior to 2016. I think, um, what's his name? Fuck, not... Uh, Justin Bieber. Yeah, close, but not quite. Um, not Alfred Newman. Uh, Alfred Pennyworth. Nope. He's a, he's a Newman. Randy Newman. Yeah, just Newman from Seinfeld. <laughs> Newman from Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's the no. He's the the other score composer. The guy, John the one Williams. Can, Thomas Newman, the guy who did all the oh. fucking uh, Pixar movies. Uh, oh, Michael. Thomas uh, Newman. Thomas Newman. Thomas Newman. What are you talking about? Thomas Noonan did, did a whole bunch of fucking Pixar films. Finding Nemo, Wally. I'm looking at them right now. I've got my live. I'm doing live research. Actually, it looks like he only did a few. Never mind. Fuck. <laughs> Finding Nemo, never, Wally. I, when you said uh, when you said it was something Newman, and I I swear to God, I thought you were talking about Randy, Randy Newman, Newman. Yeah, doing <laughs> the Pixar. He did like every Pixar film until fucking uh, everything pre. 
Toy Story 2, at least. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he w- this guy will always be known as Thomas No Relation Newman. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, You are right. He did do Finding Nemo and WALL-E. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, no, he's a great composer. He uh, he did one of my favorite scores for... Uh, uh, we'll talk about this, actually. I, I'll allude to this later in when we do our favorite scores, because I can't wait for that. Mm. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to fucking nerd out on that. Of more general discussions before we get into some of our favorites. I know we wanted to shout out some of the big composers. I was going to, because I don't know if I'll specifically go too deep into any of the, of these films, but John Williams is obviously one of the more, uh, he's probably done the most famous films yeah. more or less. So Jaws is probably the biggest, f- earliest big film that he did. Uh, the whole, you know, da na da na minor seconds my dude why minor seconds my dude oh okay yeah that was just me flexing about music theory oh fair enough i know the novels and uh so star wars is probably uh the most iconic of his work i'd say yeah uh maybe i'll save this for later but i've got my own hot take about the music of star wars which we'll get into when we discuss the Mandalorian. Okay, I have my own hot takes about Star Wars, and I'm probably I'm fairly certain that they're not your hot takes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that'll be uh, uh, after we discuss uh, some of these, we'll talk about that. But so Jurassic Park is is another one of, of a very iconic score that he did, which is maybe my favorite of John Williams' music. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Potter is another famous one, which. Uh, specifically the first two films he did all the music for. So like the the famous, da, 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 da. yeah, like he did that. The ones that were actually all... memorable. Exactly. Like I couldn't <laughs> tell you any themes from the other ones uh, unless they are referencing the original theme to the the first one. Exactly. Um, and then Home Alone, which is a a kick ass film. Uh, he did the music for that one. Yep. Uh, and then in my notes it says and many more. What about Schindler's List? That's a big one. I haven't seen it and haven't heard the music. Oh, so fuck. I was going yeah, to mo- I was gonna shout out a movie I haven't listened to the music to. Yeah, well, that's that's like the best movie. I, th- I think that that's one of my favorite scores that he's done because it just like fucking destroys your soul. Cause you it's prefer like the, it to the, the music of Home Alone? Uh, I don't even remember the music of Home Alone very well. I'm... I, I, I'm like not really into the whole like millennial revisionist thing. Like, you know, I wasn't like a huge Home Alone fan as a kid. And, you know, I'm not just going to revisit it just for nostalgia. But so I like, was a Home Alone fan. Yeah, that, that's fine. I know it's it's probably a good film. I mean, it's, got, it's got Robert De Niro in it or not Robert De Niro. No, the, Joe um, Pesci. Not. No, it's got, yeah, Joe, it's Pesci. got Joe Pesci. I was about to, I was about to uh, make another fuck up and say uh, Danny DeVito. But uh, anyway, Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, he's got Macaulay Culkin, so uh, that's... That what, made what, Macaulay Culkin's career. I hope yeah, you know this. It definitely did, and uh, it only went uphill from there. <laughs> <laughs> he's back, though. He's He's got a podcast as well. Shout out to Macaulay Culkin, friend of the show. His podcast, well, I mean, like, to be fair, his podcast will always be more successful than Spin This, probably. Yeah. Knock on wood. He, he, uh, did you have a composer that you wanted to give a shout out to? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I just... Uh, I've already talked about Hans Zimmer a little bit, but yeah, what um, kind of films has Hans Zimmer done? Well, he's done all like all over the place, you know. He's well, he name pre- them. <laughs> he pretty much does all films now. Well, he did. He's doing uh, Dune for Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I mean, way back in the day, he did like Pirates of the Caribbean, and he did. Hmm. Uh, uh, well, 
I'll just say it. He did Gladiator. That's that's like one of my favorites. Okay. Uh, even though I'm kind of like teasing the uh, favorite score section, I'm going to go out and yeah. say it. But Gladiator is probably the one that slaps the most for me. Um, he's done some Christopher Nolan ones. Yeah, Christopher. he's done Interstellar. He's done Inception. He's done most of them, I'd say. Dark most of Knight. the more high-profile ones. Dark Knight. Uh, yeah. Before we get into our favorite scores, should we should we duke this out? Should we duke out the the Star Wars hot takes? Yeah. Well, you mentioned yours first, and I I want you to do your your hot takes because for me it's not a huge hot take. Well, we'll see. It's a relatively big hot take. I mean, like in absolute terms. I mean, yeah. Me- it because uh, I so speaking of you know the whole nostalgia film thing. I didn't grow up with Star Wars. I think Star Wars are films that I've seen. Yeah. And that's pretty much the extent of my opinion on them. Uh, I, I knew the music of Star Wars before I knew the film Star Wars. And I think the music is uh, itself iconic, but I don't particularly think Star Wars music is anything too close to my heart. Yeah. But I think the music of The Mandalorian is amazing. And I would say it's better than the best of the John Williams Star Wars music. Yeah. Ludwig Gorison. Gorison. Gorenson, yeah, he he did the Mandalorian music, and I think that it's better than John Williams' main theme of Star Wars music. Um, so I don't know if I would necessarily say it's better, but uh, I would. <laughs> I just did. I know, but um, for for me, uh, I I do really like the this the score that Ludwig Gorenson has written thus far for the Mandalorian. I think it's pretty fucking good. Uh, I will say it's better than all of the uh, attempts to imitate the aesthetic of John Williams that have been done mm-hmm. uh, since, uh, especially with the spinoff trilogy, or no, I want to say spinoff trilogy. The sequel? Yeah, the spinoff films in the... Oh, you mean like Solo and shit? Solo and Rogue One. Solo, uh, I have a problem with because of them using the John Williams music because I felt like it was a lazy, a lazy ploy. To, to reel you into a movie that was just okay. Yeah, I mean, like, if they're... Like when they show the Millennium a- Falcon and then you hear the main Star Wars theme playing in the background, you're like, oh, shit, that was in Star Wars? Uh, if it's the main... I mean, like, so I, if they're using, like, either the theme or elite motif from the original trilogy, I don't mind, as long as they're actually using it in a context that is proper. You know what I'm saying? And like, that's appropriate. where I disagree, because the Mandalorian didn't even touch any of that music. Well, it didn't, because there's no elite motifs that reference any material in the And that's trilogy. probably why I enjoyed it better. Because there's nothing in the original trilogy. Yeah, there's nothing. Because I'm I'm it's, not someone that, that uh, holds Star Wars in such a sacred, untouchable place of my heart where I, uh, you know, I, I can enjoy... I where where I I need it to be that reimagining or recapturing of the original thing. I like it when it's its own thing and it can stand alone. I didn't want a prequel of Han Solo, but I wanted a standalone thing that has nothing to do with any of the movies. Which is why The Mandalorian is a good show. So basically, you think Star Wars sucks? I I think that I if I can go the rest of my life without hearing the term Jedi, I'll be okay. Wow! Everybody, did you hear that? All right, you've been (laughs) called out. Right? You've been called out, Jedi stands. <laughs> but okay, back to the Mandalorian, which I, uh, you know, the show itself I think is good. I, you know, knowing what it is, it's good at being what it is. The music, I uh, and oh, okay, so being what it is is an outer space western 
uh, series, uh, more episodic rather than uh, a, a large continuing story. I mean, there is uh, an amount of connection between the episodes, but for the most part, they're standalone episodes, which kind of makes it me think a little bit more of like classic Western episodic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the music feels very much like a space Western. It's what I wanted from an outer space Western score. Um, mm, I don't know about that. Well, I, I will say that it is exactly oh, that. Wait, do you mean Mandalorian or do you mean the original? Yeah, Mandalorian. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. What did you think I meant? I thought you meant the original trilogy. No, fuck say, that. Oh, yeah. That has nothing <laughs> to do with what I'm talking If anything that I said should be remembered is that I'm not being, I'm not going to be talking about the original. If there's film. anything that you should remember is that Sam hates Star Wars. Uh, he wants the franchise to go down the hole where it belongs. Well, well. Uh, where it's not going that far. I just don't. I, I just, it, I didn't grow up with it. I grew up with Point of the Apes. I've said this before, and I'll defend. <laughs> my stance to the death where I'm, I, I don't hold that nostalgic place for star Wars that, that other people do. Um, yeah. and that's fine. We're at, you know, seeing star Wars for the first time in high school and watching the Mandalorian when it was coming out, they, they were no nostalgia was clouding my perception of those and the quality of the films in the show aside music, I'm going with Mando. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that is it's very, I've, as I said already, it's basically an outer space western. So a lot of like that that driving uh, rhythm and beat to it feels very uh, reminiscent of a uh, of some of the music that we would have heard in in some of those western films. Yeah, exactly. And, there's a there's a little more of an embracing of electronics too, which I'm hmm. I've uh, I much prefer because it seems that a lot of the uh, modern composers that have scored Star Wars films have been. Uh, you know, very um, conservative with their choices of instrumentation. They've all been, you know, mm-hmm. very much uh, geared towards the same kind of, uh, you know, larger orchestral arrangements yeah. like John Williams. So, yeah, like when I there, there's like a synthy part that comes in in the Mando theme, where it reminds me of almost like a, a like Star Trek original series kind of music. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it, it like a. Uh, it kind of reminds me of that kind of stuff. And then when you see that over like the end credits, that kind of gives me a full view of like, uh, of uh, Star Trek, the original series. Yeah. So the fact that it, it's able to really uh, live within that, uh, that Western score area, as well as uh, uh, that, you know, uh, 19, 19- 60s and 70s sci-fi television realm i i think that that's why it works for the show in a very uh uh supporting way as well as uh better than uh the actual star wars music yeah i i mean i'm not sure if i would place it above in in my opinion of course i know you can you can place it above but you'd be wrong (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i like it too uh I, I it's probably the best thing that has happened to Star Wars music wise uh, since the revival of uh, it's the Star best Wars. thing to happen to Star Wars since Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, you bet. It's all been downhill since since the yeah. first one. Oh, well, a lot of it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, like you said, I think a lot of uh, the majority of Star Wars is garbage, and I think yeah. you'd probably be correct about that. Like m- more. Much more than half of the films are just not really watchable. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of them are kind of uh, standing on 
uh, the shoulders of that original score in a lot of ways. Like uh, the prequels, as shitty as they did have some music that was new to them. And that probably has to do with John Williams being being the guy, uh, being a very good composer. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the films, especially the spinoff films, have really relied on those original songs of the original or the original score. Yeah. So a part of my hot take was that I was going to point out how I wouldn't say plagiaristic, but the the uh, the degree to which the original trilogy score referenced a lot of 20th century classical music, especially the music of Gustav Holst and Igor Stravinsky. There is a a, a moment, uh, a score cue where C-3PO and R2-D2 arrive on Tatooine and they come out of the escape pod. And mm. I believe this is the moment where it is basically the very beginning of the second movement of the Rite of Spring. Uh, it is basically more or less a carbon copy there are slight deviations in in the actual lines that are written but um in the 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 ostinato that is playing in the in the high woodwinds and then the the bassoon that comes in and kind of interjects and then uh the use of the strings to kind of like supplement that that ostinato uh the what's an ostinato an ostinato is just like a repeating line is pretty okay. much so it's like in, uh, for our audience that isn't uh musically uh musically inclined yeah uh it's 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 just like a repeating like a pattern of some kind and, and so a lot and then uh actually i think rick beato did another video where he showed the similarities between the um the score cue in which they dock at the death star and uh, a lot of the um it was i know it was the yeah it's the the score cue in which they dock at the death star and it was Mars from Gustav Holst, which is mm -hmm. part of the the planet's uh, pantheon. Uh, I think so, we played that in uh, in senior band. Yeah, we played a concert band day. arrangement. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. I remember it was weird because it was like the first thing that we played that was in a time signature that was wasn't like three four or four four or six eight or something like that. So yeah. we were all like, "What the fuck is going on here? How do we play yeah. this?" Yeah, it was in five four, I think. Mars. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny when you listen to it, you 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 start to hear modern parallels. It's like when you mm -hmm. listen to a lot of like Wagner, you hear Wagner all the time in film score music now. Yeah, the ripoffs. Yeah, I feel like there's less of an uh, an influence of uh, Romantic era composers now. Uh, mm -hmm. I feel like there's more of an influence of like minimalism, uh, especially in contemporary scores like Hans Zimmer. Uh, especially with big scores like Interstellar, but mm -hmm. yeah, especially back in like uh, the seventies, you you had mentioned that uh, Star Wars, I think, was originally based off of uh, classic sci-fi serials or space opera serials. Like Flash, I didn't Gordon. mention that, but it's true. Oh yeah, uh, you, <laughs> I don't know. I might have been thinking of uh, it was just something you I you know. mentioned it to yourself, and I have, uh, a and it is a true fact. I have a caricature of you in my mind that I converse with when we're, whenever we're not talking. So See, I didn't say it out loud, but I thought it and you read my mind. Yeah. So that caricature of you that exists in your mind also exists in my mind and we and we converse. We each share a caricature of me in our minds, but they're both <laughs> yeah. saying this. They're both in sync with each other. Yeah, there's no need to have a caricature of me because I just no, no, say no, everything we... that I would otherwise say. <laughs> I don't need a caricature of you if I can project my caricature into your mind. I was about, I thought you were about to say, 
I don't need a character of you if I already have a character of myself in my <laughs> mind to talk with. <laughs> yeah, it pretty much overlaps enough areas where it's like, yeah, I don't need it. Get rid of him. It's like, wait, what did I say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, so Star Wars was based off of a lot of classic adventure serials, and um, it was, I, I don't actually blame John Williams for having invoked a lot of these 20th century composers. I think a lot of it was due to the fact that um, they had placed in temp tracks uh, and a lot of the, mm. there was a lot of pressure to um, deliver pretty much the same sound or aesthetic that is going on in the temp track in yeah. your score queue. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that if you don't deliver precisely what's going on in the temp track, then it's possible that you could just, that the producers could just decide to use the temp track as the score. Uh, yeah. which is exactly what they did with uh 2001 a space odyssey mm. um which i mean is a, is a good soundtrack but uh i think it would kind of been cool if they had an original score but i mean then it wouldn't yeah. have been a completely different film but anyway yeah. yeah so i don't blame john williams and you and you actually mentioned the prequels as well um i actually think that a lot of the music in the prequels is even in some cases better than the original trilogy because you see John Williams style kind of developing um, independently. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, there's probably a lot less of a need uh, for him to use temp tracks because he's worked with George Lucas so many times in the past and yeah. has looped uh, and has worked with uh, Lucasfilm so much that he probably wasn't, uh, you know, assigned the task of uh, composing the score with temp tracks already in place. So that's what I'm guessing. And in between his work on Star Wars and then returning to Star Wars, he made Home Alone music. Yeah. So there you go. He he was able to grow enough as a as a professional musician and composer from Home Alone that he was able to do the masterpieces that is Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Yeah. So basically, uh, just summarize, he did Star Wars, he did a few other movies, and then he did Star Wars again. Oh, and Home Alone. Yeah, that that was in the few other movies. That that was the that was the that was the diss. Yeah. Well, I gave Home Alone its its due shout out. Shall, shall we proceed into some of our favorite scores? Yeah, favorite scores. All right. Um. So probably my favorite film score. I've got to go with The Incredibles by Michael Giacchino. Yeah, I think it's Giacchino. Giacchino actually sounds like more makes more sense. Giacchino doesn't sound right. Well, Giacchino is what I'm going with. Michael Giacchino. He's done a ton of films. He's probably the modern version of like a John Williams type guy. Yeah. Uh, He's done a bunch of the Pixar movies. I know he did well, Incredibles. Obviously, he did. Uh, I know he did Inside Out. Um, he probably, I think he did up as well. Yeah. He did the, uh, the reboot of Star Trek, the 2009 film. He's done pretty much, there's, there's probably a handful of, of composers that did all of the big blockbuster films and he's probably the, one of the leading ones up there. Um, yeah. so the Incredibles, I really love because it's, it's essentially in the style of like a 1960s superhero spy film i've actually been watching the 1960s batman series uh, and i can definitely hear some of the influence of like the the like the brass stings here and there where it's, it's like you're accenting punching a a a masked thug in the face with a a, a, a trumpet flare or something like that yeah like a and, uh, yeah except <laughs> you know i think it's called a growl 
Yeah, yeah. Real. So that kind of stuff is all over the Incredibles score. And then it's got kind of that duh, 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 where yeah. you kind of get like Mission Impossible vibes from that kind of stuff or like, you know, other, you know, spy type stuff. Uh, so I, I really, uh, you know, with my sort of comments about the, the Mandalorian, I definitely like a, a film score that really invokes the theme of the movie the the genre of the movie and so like a very deliberate choice with those kind of things uh, it definitely goes a long way with me in the uh, for a film score so the incredibles is number one for me so jurassic park i've mentioned already uh i really love that one that one i don't know if i would really say it it, it does the same things as as the incredibles in that way of it doesn't make me think of dinosaurs i guess <laughs> uh but it's definitely got that uh that sort of magic of being in a kind of fantasy world, that kind of uh, unbelievableness. So that one's a, a very um, a very magical score, for lack of a better term. Um, Psycho, Bernard Herrmann is the composer of that one. So Psycho, the Alfred, yeah. Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock film. Iconic score. Yeah. So that's pretty much uh, another, similar to how we had uh, Ennio whatever his name is Ennio Morricone Ennio Morricone I think for the Ennio Morricone for the uh for the spaghetti western genre I feel like Psycho did a lot for the horror film music genre for show where you've got the uh the sharp strings sounds going and you've got that uh, uh kind of an eerie melody for the main theme and stuff uh that kind of unease that you would get in a lot of horror movies I feel like Psycho definitely did a lot uh, for influencing uh, uh, horror films that would come following that. Mm-hmm. Um, those are my main actual score selections. I've got a couple other that are more original soundtracks, but I don't know if we want to go into that later. Do you mean is it like music specifically written for the film? Yes. Yeah, you can do. You can go it up. Do it up. No longer controversial for this podcast, but uh, Eddie Vedder into the wild. Uh, yeah. So he he. <laughs> he did uh, uh, the music for the film Into the Wild, which is, uh, I want to say Sean Penn directed that film, but I could be completely wrong about that. Um, so it's pretty much like I have that soundtrack on vinyl because it's essentially uh, a really dope Eddie Vedder album um, huh. where he's pretty much written uh, an album's worth of songs that just go with the movie. Yeah. Uh, so if you're if you enjoy... Pearl Jam and the voice of Eddie Vedder in particular. Uh, He does a lot of, uh, it's a lot more uh, acoustic than uh, something like Pearl Jam. Uh, I know he's got uh, mandolin for a couple tracks there. Kind of that easy breezy type uh, instrumentation uh, and uh, obviously a lot of feature on his vocals of of that that formerly controversial style. And then uh, of other Soundtracks. Uh, so the uh, Superfly is a film that I haven't seen, but I know the music of it. Uh, Curtis Mayfield is the uh, musician behind that. Um, where it's very like funky. I mean, I actually don't know much about Curtis Mayfield either. Only the song "Move On Up." That song fucking goes. So Superfly is basically like a sort of. Uh, uh, crime film from the 70s uh and the the soundtrack to it is very funk uh featured 
very funk album, I guess. Um, and uh, the the title track "Superfly" uh, is something that you'd certainly recognize. Um, and I feel like it's one of those soundtracks where people might be more familiar with the music than the film, unless they've sought out those films. Um, I know that when I would more frequently buy uh, albums, I would see that one being sold new. Like that one is one that people are seeking out as far as soundtracks go. Mm. Uh, other soundtracks are, that are more so original songs. Uh, I want to shout out the Space Jam soundtrack, <laughs> uh, which sounds silly, but it had a lot of original songs written for it. Um, I'm pulling that up in my research. Uh, there, I know there was a track that was a collaboration of uh, Chris Rock and Barry White, <laughs> which is a an interesting yeah. Uh, yeah collaboration to say the least. Match made in heaven, right there. Yeah, uh, and then. Um, uh, some of the songs existed beforehand, but some of them I think were actually written specifically for uh, the film. I believe I, I, I believe the song "I Believe I Can Fly" by R. Kelly was uh, first released as uh, as part of this soundtrack, uh, which is probably the most famous song associated with this film, at least. What else you got? You got "Basketball Jones," which is the Chris Rock Barry White song. Uh, you've got. Uh, Wait, does Chris Rock sing on it, or does he do like a spoken word type thing? He does Chris Rock on it. Okay, uh, it's a very funny song. It's not funny, but I mean, it's he, Chris Rock is funny, and then Barry White is a good, uh, deep vocalist. Mm-hmm. Fly like an eagle is another famous song that's on that album. Was that written but, for the the? I don't know if that one was. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm 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 kind of I uh, uh, putting an asterisk on this one where. Some of the songs are original to the film. Uh, I don't think that uh, Chris Rock and Burry White uh, had the inspiration to make a song called Basketball Jones separate from Space Jam. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, uh, I Believe I Can Fly was originally released for this film. Nice. Uh, another soundtrack, probably, I'll say it's my favorite of the ones written specifically for films, uh, Tenacious D and The Pick of Destiny. Yeah, big up on that one. That's probably the best music movie music. Yeah. If that makes sense. So Tenacious D being uh, Jack Black and Kyle Gass, uh, and all the songs on it are, they're they're essentially comedy songs, but uh, at their core, they're still very kick-ass rock songs. Uh, if that's your thing. Uh, and then I also got to give a special place in my heart to School of Rock, another Jack Black affiliated production. Classic. Um, most of that soundtrack uh, is pre-existing rock songs. Like I know the song Immigrant Song by uh, Led Zeppelin is in there. Uh, they do a few second cover of Touch Me by The Doors. Lawrence is good at piano. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, they've got some original songs. They've got uh, the the Legend of the Rent, which is uh, my an favorite. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> where we <laughs> technically did a cover of that for our Thread Fosh uh, SoundCloud account. Yeah, it was technically a cover. Let's just put it at that. <laughs> I think technically I did all of. No, I think we did do. We both did the music for it. The genre 
on SoundCloud is spoken prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's called in the end of time dot mp4. <laughs> Uh, where we just play some some nonsense on a MIDI keyboard and electric guitar, yeah, uh, with the v- lyrics of of the Legend of the Rent was way hardcore being spoken out by a text to speech generator, yeah, and just overlaid on top of that. It's when like I discovered free jazz and I was like, dude, we could do this, man. <laughs> we could make a free jazz song. Yeah, it's just just uh, play whatever. Uh, on that soundtrack, they also do a uh, an awesome cover of "It's a Long Way to the Top" if you want to rock and roll by ACDC, yeah. and then the original song that they do at the climax of the film. Um, uh, what is that song even called? I just call it Zach's song because Zach is the guitar player that wrote it. Uh, but it's the one that goes, "Baby, we were making straight A's, but that was back in the dumb days." Um. And that song, it essentially is, it is school on time or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You gotta get me to school on time. And I wanna be the teacher's pet. Yeah. And better forget. Yeah, that's the one. Rock got no reason. Rock got no rhyme. Better get me to school on time. Yeah, I would ah, say. Yeah. What? <laughs> um, but that song is perfect for the film because it essentially the lyrics, if you're listening to them, are. More or less the plot of Mr. Schneevely, a.k.a. Dewey Finn, coming into their lives uh, and changing their lives for the better. Uh, each of the bandmates are featured in a way that kind of brings their character arc to a full circle. Yeah. We got, you know, uh, Lawrence, who's not cool enough, uh, who's able to do the fucking coolest uh, keyboard solo and he's got the coolest look and he's he's like has his own moment there. You got... Uh, uh, the fucking drummer who's a piece of shit kid uh, who can't do anything, but he's actually good enough to be a drummer. Uh, and he kind of has his own moments with Dewey Finn where he's like, you know, there's more, uh, uh, well, you know, we didn't come here to win. We came here to do a kick-ass show kind of thing. You got Zach, who's the, 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 the shy guitarist, uh, reluctant guitarist because his dad is, uh, uh, is giving him a hard time and stuff. And then he does a kick-ass solo. And it's the song that he wrote. Uh, and then you got the uh, that one uh, uh, girl that thinks she's too fat to be uh, a backup singer in the band, but she gets like a featured solo in it. And it's, it's satisfying because all of their character arcs, they've grown as students, they've grown as people, they've grown as musicians. And it was all because of, of Dewey Finn. Yeah. And I love how the, the entire movie functions as a, an elaborate roast of private schools. Yeah. Because fuck and, private schools. Go to yeah. pu- go to public school. Don't be a bitch and go to into private school. And also a special shout out to uh, the other original song in the film. Uh, math is a really cool thing. Yeah. So get off your <laughs> ass. Math is a wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Three minus four is negative, negative one. one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also the the other original song is the uh, the step off song. Yeah, step off. Uh, Zip off! Zip off! I can't do that without my voice cracking. That's part of it. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much my entire uh, film score. So you can you can take over from here. Go for it. Yeah, so... Go for it. Film scores are kind of like my thing, okay? They're my trash. Well, they're not even yeah. trash. But um, 
yeah so i i fucking dig film scores i've been wanting to write film scores since i was a kid this is like one of the rare things where i actually had an ambition that still exists into my adulthood um in this case uh i mean i have a lot of favorite films uh and a lot of you know favorite film scores uh you know some of them have kind of been there for a long time some of them are kind of like relatively new additions and a lot of them are all across the board with their styles um the biggest one in my opinion probably my favorite score um if i had to choose would be the the score to koyana scotsi by philip glass um you know a lot of like classical music aficionados will dunk on philip glass for his music being too you know simple and repetitive but classical music fans can s my d because philip glass is uh is a badass and uh, he's um, uh, rich and successful for, for people he that don't know fucks. he probably does but he i was gonna fucks. ask um for people that don't know what kanasasakwe is koyana scotsi yeah oh it's a it's uh there's no dialogue there's no narration it's just mu- music and footage but it's like footage of the world that is framed in such a way where it kind of like makes you think about the the balance of you know the human impact on the world versus the kind of natural state of equilibrium uh it's really cool probably one of the best shot films i've ever seen just because it uh it's able to summarize its entire thesis without ever having to dictate anything to you it's like the the apotheosis of show don't tell so and i enjoy it a lot of people will probably find it boring i kind of dig it um it does take a kind of particular uh, patient mood in order to appreciate it so i mean if i'm feeling particularly ecstatic i'm probably not going to watch koyana scotsi but I, I do get kind of a strange almost profound experience watching the film it is like in my opinion a proper piece of art and the and the score which because of the lack of narration and dialogue uh almost has more of a role uh to play so in, in this case, I think it's actually one of my favorite scores of all time. And I've probably listened to it a million times now, obviously hyperbolically, because then I'd still be listening to it. A million is now. a lot. Yeah, I would probably have hated it by now if I listened to it a million times. But anyway, um, I, I know that there's, pro- there's probably a lot of these, so I want to gloss over some of them. But the, mm-hmm. the top ones are going to be the ones that I'm a little more verbose about. Uh, Lord of the Rings is another big one. In fact... It's almost tied with Koyana Scotsi as my favorite. The only thing is that there are three of them and they are like, I wouldn't say they're inconsistent of quality. They are like pretty consistently great, but I would say that I prefer the score to the first film and then, mm-hmm. then it would come the, the third film uh, and then uh, the two towers. And where uh, do you the rank the film. Hobbit films in there? Uh, well, I mean, it's not a Lord of the Rings film, so I'm going to get away with not having to uh, talk about The Hobbit at all. So, And also, I think they, for a lot of it, at least, they reuse a lot of the music from the original trilogy. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's all right. I guess you're revisiting the same universe and it's the same composer, right? But, I mean, as long yeah, as you're using the same... it's lazy. Yeah, I mean, but if it's a leap motif, then I don't mind. Because uh, the, the Lord of the Rings score does depend on that leap motif, which is a... Um, a musical device that is used to represent a particular character uh, or right a particular that's true motif. but when they reuse like a motif from the film for a character that wasn't in the first films 
Yeah, I I don't know of any particular case. On honestly, like, I I'm not. Uh, I don't really fuck with the Hobbit films. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that they were kind of boring, to be honest. Uh, I kind of yeah. I like uh, Martin Freeman, but that's, that's beside, it's not really music related anyway. But yeah. um, I I don't I'll say I don't I you know I've got no particular stake in Lord of the Rings. Um, I only really properly watched uh, the first one, like paying attention to understand it uh, last year, um, and I enjoyed it. Yeah. But uh, the music is definitely it's up there. It it's similar with uh. Uh, very setting up of a universe and world. It very much fits perfectly with uh, this world that's been created. Yeah, for me, this probably carries a lot more sentimental value. Um, But for me, this is the kind of score that evokes all kinds of weird physiological responses, goosebumps, you know, chills, Tears. You want to talk about TV music? Let's talk about Goosebumps. I, I honestly, I, I, I didn't really have much of a childhood, so yeah. my childhood was basically Lord of the Rings on repeat. I was basically watching Koyana Scotsy as a as a child. I was as watching a cub? as a cub. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. As a, as a cub, I was raised to watch visual tone poem documentaries. No, I mean, so yeah, Lord of the Rings. Uh, I love it. Um, it's it's. I would almost say it's tied with Koyaanisqatsi, but if I had to choose mm-hmm. a singular film, it would probably be Koyaanisqatsi. Koyaanisqatsi also a trilogy, but uh, I mean Koyaanisqatsi is the only one that I really care about. The other ones are just, you know, the same kind of idea. They're fine, but they're mm. they I don't they don't for me carry the same emotional weight as Koyaanisqatsi. Yeah. Um, another big one for me, formative, is the Blade Runner score by Vangelis. Um, this is probably the the most interesting use of the synthesizer in film score music that I've ever seen. And the use of synthesizers is blended so seamlessly with uh, uh, other instrumentation in a, in a way that is subtle and doesn't uh, defeat the atmosphere in any way. Uh, there are parts that feature uh, a lead saxophone. Wait, uh, which one is this? Blade Runner uh, oh, okay. by Vangelis. The, uh, so... There are, uh, there's even a kind of like 1920s ballad uh, mm. called One More Kiss Deer uh, that is kind of like a, a, a diegetic song that is used within the context of the film. And there's also um, uh, a lot of different stylistic uh, inspirations. There's a lot of uh, blues and jazz influence in the score. Uh, it's very... Um, reflective of a kind of noir type landscape i guess you could say but yeah. within a within the context of a uh very modernized synth score i guess it would sound kind of dated like contemporaneously but uh like at the i time, haven't seen blade runner properly but just from my instincts i would assume it's kind of like a a noir sci-fi uh synthy score yes exactly um yeah. There's, I would probably uh, dig it based on my other likings of the parallels between the music and the film. I think you you would dig it because uh, it's not um, uh, it's not overly atmospheric like like say the the score to the sequel Blade Blade Runner twenty forty nine which was scored by uh, I think um, Benjamin Wolfish and Hans Zimmer as well uh, and it was a lot of that score was while it was interesting timbrely it was very referential to the 
the style that Vangelis used. I mean, obviously, if you're going to compose something in-universe, uh, you're not going to compose something totally out of... Uh, uh, stylistically different from what your predecessor composed. So, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I love it very much. Um, I I will say though the actual um, LP release of this soundtrack is very strange in that they decided to in- incorporate the dialogue from the film into the the CD release, which oh, is very weird. weird. I just like yeah. obviously I don't want to hear the dialogue when I'm listening to the original score. Because you might as well like watch the movie, at that yeah, point. right. It's it's a weird thing, but anyway, I mean, it might have been like a reference to when they used to include like uh, skits and stuff like that. What like when they used to do like, uh, when they used to release like like soundtracks proper. But I don't know. Anyway, uh, I mentioned this one already, but uh, the Gladiator score by Hans Zimmer and Lisa uh, Gerard. The uh, there there are several just like really interesting moments on this score. Uh, obviously, Hans Zimmer has kind of been criticized for being a uh, you know kind of a generic kind of composer, but um, as far as like influence in the genre and in uh, you know film music in general, I think he's kind of you know probably the the most influential living film composer. So I think there's kind mm-hmm. of no contest there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of the tropes that he invokes are copied uh, by a lot of other composers, especially um, those who would compose music for trailers and whatnot. Especially the yeah. the kind of iconic in- Inception. Uh, you yeah, know, I was brass just gonna say, boom, boom. yeah, the bomb. Yeah, that's pretty much become a cliche of of action movie trailers or yeah. trailers in general. Yeah. Um, Lisa Gerard is, uh, she's from the band, uh, uh, what is it called? I'm fucking blanking out. Uh, she's from the band called... The Beatles. Not quite, but close. Oh, the Rolling Stones. She's in the band called... Hans and the Zimmers. She was in that band for a little while, but she left to join Dead Can Dance. Uh, okay. and Dead Can Dance wrote some really cool, uh, like dark wave music back in the nineties. It was really cool shit. Um, and I think actually that's actually how Hans Zimmer find, found out about her. But anyway, there's some really beautiful melodies. Uh, she sings in a kind of like improvised echolalia. Um, the way that I f- found out about the instrument Duduk was that the, uh, uh, the world famous Duduk player, uh, Javon Gasparian plays on this album as well. Uh, the the duduk is probably the instrument that you would most associate with anything related to the desert, which is another trope mm. that has been uh, kind of carbon copied in a lot of scores. Um, but uh, anyway, that's all I wanted to say about that. Yep. Uh, one that uh, I like is There Will Be Blood by Johnny Greenwood. Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead fame. Uh, this score is particularly nice. Uh, it invokes a lot of, uh, you know, kind of early 20th century, like second Viennese school type music uh, and a lot of like early 20th century classical music like Bella Bartok. Uh, it's a very challenging, dissonant score, mostly. Uh, one of the, Another one I really like is Princess Mononoke by Joe Hisaishi, uh, obviously one of the Studio Ghibli movies. Uh, beautiful score. Joe Hisaishi very much influenced by... Impressionistic composers like Claude Debussy and uh, Maurice Ravel. 
Uh, Elevator to the Gallows by Miles Davis, a big one that I love. Oh. I This is one case where I actually have not seen the film yet. I have not seen Louis Mal's Elevator to the Gallows, but uh, I do really love the score. It kind of helped give birth to the film noir score genre and its association with jazz. So that that is a big one. Um, I already mentioned Road to Perdition by Thomas Newman. Uh, Thomas, Thomas Newman. No Relation. Thomas No Relation Newman. Uh, Taxi Driver by Bernard Herrmann. Another really cool uh, use of jazz and... Uh, Bernard Herrmann of Psycho. Yeah. Previously. Or he composed the score to uh, several of Alfred Hitchcock's films as well. I want to mm-hmm. say North by Northwest was him as well. Uh, I don't know. And I've, I think I've seen Taxi Driver almost once and... It was okay, almost once. I, what's that? <laughs> almost once. <laughs> I've seen it once. Oh, I thought you, uh, but you said almost once. It's only almost once, like I think I said. It. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, is that Martin Scorsese? Yeah, he directed that. Yeah. I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm particularly a fan of, 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 of Marty. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I dig the music of that film. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not like, I don't love Scorsese, but I love that film. Uh, I love, well, I, I enjoy some of the films that he's done more recently as well. Um, that, that is one of the rare films in his, in his catalog that I would say that I really, um, really fuck with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could go on about Nino Rota. Nino Rota is a great composer. He probably writes some of my favorite melodies in all of film score composing music. The one that I wanted to highlight was Romeo and Juliet, uh, because I think it's one of Nino Rota's best and under-recognized scores. But obviously, the one that everybody knows is the music to The Godfather's parts one through three. Um, And I think those are the only Godfather films that I know of. But uh, all of the iconic melodies within those films, I mean, Godfather is uh, probably one of the most critically hailed films of all time. And because of that, the music has taken on a kind of uh, emblematic quality as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that as far as the function of a score, which is to um, augment the atmosphere of a film and to bring out the underlying emotions of a scene, it works perfectly. Uh, And obviously the the melodies are just like incredible, like recognizable, like right offhand. So uh, that's it for me. Uh, I tried to be... Uh, brevity is apparently not the soul of wit, uh, or either that, or I'm just not a very witty person because that was long as fuck, and I am done. Brevity is the soul of edits. But more like brevity is the soul of shit. True. Well, they still um, got some response from that. I did want to briefly touch on some non-original soundtracks for films, so films that... Uh, use pre-existing songs. I won't go too much into this, but uh, of recent years, one of the more famous ones is Guardians of the Galaxy. So that pretty much every song, well, I mean, there's obviously a score to it as well, but all the songs you used in it were songs <laughs> popular in like the 60s and 70s and 80s and stuff like that. Um, so some of the big songs, there's uh, 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 Hooked on a Feeling uh, is probably the song most associated with that film. Um, Ain't No Mountain High Enough is in that soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, 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 I Want You Back, Jackson 5 uh, is in that soundtrack. Um, a bunch from that kind of era. Um, so that really sets the tone for 
uh, the characters in that film. So I think that does a really good job with that. Uh, and then the sequel to that has a lot of good songs. Like there's some uh, Electric Light Orchestra. I think there's a song by Parliament in the second one. Cool. Um, more recently, the the Joker film, um, which I really like that film. I don't know how you felt about it. but I, I enjoyed I, it, yeah. Uh, I fuck with that one. Um, some of the songs on that, there's obviously uh, uh, some Sinatra in there. Um, I love Sinatra. Yeah. Uh, that's Life is uh, one of the ones that's in there, and I love that song. Sinatra probably had um, a fair amount of sex in his lifetime. He fucked, for sure. Um, I he can't confirm fucking. or deny that, but I would believe it. There is a high likelihood that that guy fucked. It's true. Yeah. Um, some of the That's other... all I wanted to say. <laughs> that's <laughs> no, my opinion no. of... <laughs> That's my opinion of Sinatra. That's my entire opinion is that he probably had intercourse. Yeah. Uh, some of the other songs that are in uh, uh, the soundtrack, there's uh, another Sinatra, Send in the Clowns. There's that version in there. Yeah. Um, there's uh, White Room by Cream is in there. Um, uh, there's a song. So the song is called Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter. You would 100% recognize the song when you hear it. It's the song that's playing when he's walking down the staircase in the in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, where I promise, if you just, if anyone listening Google's "Rock and Roll Part 2, Gary Glitter, you'll hundred percent recognize the song upon hearing it. Um, uh, and yeah, there's a couple of songs that are recognizable, um, but I think it does a really good job at uh, creating these uh, these kind of moments of with music to. Uh, build the character and stuff so i thought it did a really good job with picking songs to to fit with the the atmosphere of the film um and then a final shout out is just to the works of quentin tarantino i'd say pretty much every film that he releases uh either brings a song back to the spotlight or a song that might may have been kind of just of its time bringing it to a whole new audience um so pulp fiction Obviously, has a bunch of songs in it. Probably the most famous one is uh, I can't I can't remember what it's called, but it's that that surf rocky type song that is uh, pretty much at the beginning of the film. I don't know if you know that song. I'm oh, Miserlou by Dick Dale. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. That's probably the most famous surf rock song that I know of, and it's probably because of Pulp Fiction. It it is probably the most famous surf rock song of all time. I would be confident enough in saying that. Yeah, and yeah. then uh, um, Reservoir Dogs. The big one I remember from that one is uh, Stuck in the Middle with You. Yeah. Which very much, it, it almost gives it a very dark uh, <laughs> association with the song. Like, the song itself isn't particularly uh, unsettling or anything, but the scene that it goes with kind of uh, paints it in an entirely darker shade. Yeah, like Goodbye Horses will forever be yeah. as the <laughs> Buffalo Bill song. Yeah, there, uh, that kind of brings us to a tangent that uh, uh, of of songs that are completely changed by the films that they're used in. Yeah, so "Goodbye Horses" is definitely one of them. Yeah. Uh, another one I was thinking of is uh, um, the song "Hurdy Gurdy Man." It was used in the in the film Zodiac, where it's not really a a, a dark or weird song, um, but it's played during uh, a scene where the Zodiac murderer is shooting a couple people in a car and it just puts it in this very unsettling dark 60s tone mm-hmm. so I, I i think that one does it really well but yeah that's all i had about the non 
original soundtracks if you got anything to touch on i mean i just want to gloss over them because i don't have like a whole lot to say about them uh there's um some great 20th century classical music by uh i think uh i don't i'm not sure if zanakis is on there uh i know that there's a lot of Ligeti. there is uh oh what's the dude's name the polish dude uh penderecki i think that's how you say it it's 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 said like Penderecki, but I think it's actually Penderecki. I think that's how you say it in Polish or whatever. Uh, yeah, Penderecki, um, and then Bartok as well. Um, one of the reasons why I know about uh, Bartok, uh, this particular piece of Bartok, is because uh, it it was in the Sh- the Shining. It is music for percussion, Celestia strings, and tune percussion oh hold on i'm gonna call up the title it's it's a really cool piece of music strings percussion and celesta i had it just in the wrong order um it's a really cool piece uh it's the one that plays where uh i I think jack is uh uh stalking his wife around the hotel and Mm -hmm. um it's just uh it perfectly sets that atmosphere especially with the celesta kind of almost being used in a more percussive context but yeah, um, similarly to that, 2001, obviously, the other Kubrick film uses uh, uh, The Blue Danube and uh, uh, the Richard Strauss piece, um, what was it? Uh, also, Sprach Zarathustra. I, there's no way to say that without fucking that up. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that uh, I like the uh, the score and the soundtrack to Donnie Darko. There's a lot of good shit on there. Um uh, under the Milky Way tonight, uh, you got a lot of Joy Division, and then you have got um, that's right, Justin Bieber. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Echo and the Bunny Men, The Killing Moon, a great song, beautiful song, and uh, so just a lot of 80s and 90s post punk using that that soundtrack. Um, also a lot of uh, you know pop as well. Uh, I think they used a lot of Tears for Fears. Um, or at least some Tears for Fears. And then obviously uh, the big uh, song that is played at the climax of that film is a, a cover of Mad World by Tears for Fears by Gary Jules. Um, All around me are familiar faces. Yeah, the depressing. Yeah. When you're about to kill yourself live on Vine in 2016. Uh, not a mad Go out world, like a, a sad world. Yeah. The next segment, I wanted to talk about some songs that are, are, are written originally for a film. Um, so probably the, the most, I guess, mainstream expected version of this is when uh, a new James Bond film comes out and mm-hmm. they write a song that goes with the film. The one I want to shout out is, the, uh, is Live and Let Die the, uh, that Paul McCartney and Wings did for the film Live and Let Die. Um, I haven't seen a ton of James Bond films. I don't even think I've seen Live and Let Die. Uh, I've seen some like the 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 Sean Connery ones, and then uh, Casino Royale of the modern James Bond. Um, and uh, I've probably listened to more of the songs from James Bond films than actual than seen James Bond movies. Um, I haven't seen the movie Skyfall, but I fuck with the Skyfall song that Adele does. I think it's a really awesome song i yeah. assume it goes with the film really well yeah. even though i haven't seen it that's a really good one yeah it's probably my second favorite after the paul mccartney one yeah um and i heard the recent billy eilish one and i i i dig it yeah i, I like billy eilish 
I'd say Joe smashes. I would give it that. Yeah, I think actually Billie Eilish was a good choice in retrospect, especially because of her moody, whispered vocals. I think she uh, yeah, she's kind of really well equipped to deal. She's well equipped to, uh, you know, be the kind of, uh, you know, next Bond lead vocalist. I yeah. guess you could say. And I assume that this is the final Bond of Daniel Craig's Bond. I think so. Um, if not, it seems like I think he's probably done the most Bond films at this point of any of the actors. Um, I don't know, but I would say that's likely. Yeah, he's done several, like what four or five. Yeah, and I think the previous one was supposed to be his last one, but now he's doing this this new one. Um, so with the title like No Time to Die, I assume that maybe his version of Bond will die in it, but it sounds like a very, uh, like you said, a whispery, somber song so it, it kind of fits that death theme mm -hmm. i wanted to shout out uh separate from james bond stuff i wanted to shout out a song written for a film uh somewhat paul mccartney related so there's a a, a film that came out like in the late 2000s called role models i don't know if you ever saw that film paul rudd was in it uh one of the, the guy that's uh stifler from american pie was in it um, and, uh, there's this recurring joke in the film, uh, where, uh, they keep referencing Paul McCartney and wings and they keep, uh, uh, this one dude keeps singing a, a wing song called love, take me down to the streets. And Paul Rudd's like, that's not a wing song. No one sings that song. <laughs> and then for the end credits of the film, they got a Paul McCartney sound alike to record a version of a song called love, take me down to the streets. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> So it's basically like they uh, created the fictional Paul McCartney and Wings song, Love Take Me Down to the Streets. And it sounds spot on to Paul McCartney where it very much sounds like they got the actual Paul McCartney to record the song. Huh. But it's such a, a dumb joke based on like a couple throwaway references in the movie that made it into this hilarious uh, real song. Uh, and my love of Paul McCartney... It certainly contributes to me liking that song. The comedy and the Paul McCartney of it makes it a good song for a film. Cool. Um, a couple other quick ones I got here, uh, and then I'll let you jump in. But um, So uh, one that I didn't realize, or maybe I did know it at some point, but uh, the song Happy, Pharrell Williams, it came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. I think that was written for one of the Despicable Me's or Minion films, maybe Despicable Me 2. I think it was 2. Yeah, it seemed more recent than whenever that first one came out. Yeah. Um, but that was probably the biggest song of that year, at least the biggest one I remember from the 2013-14 era. Um, that song was certainly bigger than the film because I never saw the film, and I heard the song everywhere. Um, Staying Alive by the Bee Gees was originally written for uh, Saturday, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is another movie I haven't seen, but I know that song very well. Um, uh, Don't You Forget About Me, Simple Minds, that was written for the film Breakfast Club. That I didn't know. Yeah, that's that, interesting. I found that out in my research. I think it, was it wasn't written by Simple Minds. It was written by a film per or a music person for the film. Hmm. Um. The Power of Love, Back to the Future by... Uh, Huey Lewis in the uh, News. Huey, yep. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, 
Have you heard uh, this w- new CD by Huey Lewis in the news? Yes. Um, another one, uh, FM by Steely Dan. FM is a movie that I know nothing about. For some reason, I almost think that the song wasn't used in the film FM at the end of the day, but it was written for that film. Um, but that's probably one of my more favorite uh, Steely Dan songs. It's just such a good fucking slapping tune. Uh, it's got one of my favorite uh, lyrical lines of any songs, uh, which is uh, uh, nothing but blues and Elvis and somebody else's favorite song, mm-hmm. uh, which I really love that line for whatever reason. Um, in my research, I found that there's a song uh, by Roger Waters for a movie that I didn't see and I don't think was particularly good. Uh, called The Last Mimsy, yeah. which is a science fiction film. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know this song existed either. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually looked it up because Howard Shore co-composed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the song, it the I, I mentioned it because the lyrics mention a couple, or reference a couple other Pink Floyd songs. So it's kind of like a weird uh, throwback to Pink yeah. Floyd in it. Dark Side of the Moon and Comfortably Yeah, he mentions, uh, um, is there anybody in there is in the lyrics? yeah. Uh, so it's kind of weird that it's it's essentially like a Pink Floyd song that was written for a film, uh, and a film that wasn't particularly particularly good. And the song is all right. Um, uh, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, it, it is a kind of a cool song. I actually, you know, just found out about it just by you typing it into the notes. But uh, um, you mentioned James Bond. Uh, I have to say the my favorite all time of the James Bond songs is the one that Radio originally r- wrote and recorded. Radio, Radio. Did I say Radio? Yeah. Uh, Radiohead. Uh, give me some Radiohead. Uh, originally wrote for um, the the film Spectre, which was the one that came after Skyfall, and I believe uh, their track was rejected by the production company because it was quote unquote too depressing. And so they decided to go with the incredibly bland and generic Sam Smith. Now, don't get me wrong. Sam Smith, Spam Smith. No, Spam Smith is a uh, talented vocalist, but wow. Like the song is just so forgettable. Like I can't even remember it. Um, Anyway, uh, just a shout out to a few other ones. When she loved me, Newman and McLaughlin, good tune to uh, just like down. And, yep, just good tune to down an entire glass of wine and just cry. Uh, yeah, you got when a friend in me. That's a dev. Going back to that, that's devastating, man. Toy <laughs> Story too. Like well, that, that fucks you up. Yeah, that scene actually. When you're a kid, you're like, whoa, this is. It's like know. I've neglected my toys under the bed, and I'm I've I'm guilty. I've made them depressed and hate their lives and shit. You're going home as a kid. You got like, you, that was like the first time you've ever experienced low serotonin in your life. Yeah. Uh, and then like on the on a happier note, obviously you've got a friend in me uh, from the first Toy Story film. Some folks don't know no more than I am. Big and strong too. Just with Randy. like, just with like compression artifacts alone, you sound it sounds so <laughs> weird. <laughs> it it sounds like Randy Newman. Yeah, and then well, the one that I love, kind of my my guilty pleasure, pleasure, my guilty <laughs> pleasure, uh, is uh, Danger Zone by uh, Kenny Loggins for uh, Top Gun. Brother, yeah, yeah. 
And I, I said it was the apotheosis of hell yeah, brother. And that was not yeah. a very, that was not a very popular uh, Facebook post. I wonder if I actually pissed people off who, who like ironically like that or unironically like that song, because <laughs> for me, the only way to enjoy that song is ironically, because it's just so over the top. But Halfway to the danger zone. I, mean, I had to singer, like way though. back up from the mic to start yeah. singing that. Danger zone. Yeah, but no, he's a good singer. But I mean, there's a lot of like very tropey shit in that in that yeah. uh, song. And like um, Giorgio Marauder, uh, one of the uh, godfathers of disco, uh, co-produces that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's um, a thing. You can do whatever you want with that. Um, one that I really like from Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite trilogies I mentioned before. Uh, Into the West, written by Annie Lennox and Howard Shore. I think the lyrics were probably written by Howard Shore and performed by Annie Lennox, but I don't know. Annie Lennox from the Eurythmics. Um, beautiful My favorite, song. I was going to say, my favorite of uh, the Lord of the Rings is Pippin's song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Legendary tune. I can play it on guitar. <laughs> you can play oh. the song. <laughs> oh, Central. <laughs> That goes back in the, in the lore. Yeah, that's that that's some hidden lore right there. Yeah, our our old buddy Rodney. Yeah, he could play Pit, Pippin's song on guitar. A song that is a is solo vocals, <laughs> like a vocal <laughs> spoken, not spoken, but you know, solo vocals, no instruments. He can play that on guitar. Yeah, it's, it's like not even called Pippin's song, but it is now. It's like when people say they can play "Ode to Joy," but they can literally play "Boom." Boom 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 Yeah, so but I think you're missing the artistic genius of Pippin's song. Yeah. Wait, what? Pippin's song. Remember when Howard Shore wrote Pippin's song? Yeah. Wait, is there something that I'm missing here? I don't think it's called Pippin's song. No, I know that it's not called Pippin's Song. I, I know that the only reason you're calling it Pippin's Song is because that's what Rodney called it way back in the day. So it's I know that it's not <laughs> called Pippin's Song. You know, it's funny. They actually got, um, uh, what's his name? Billy Boyd to come back and perform a song for the last of the Hobbit films in the trilogy. Oh. So it's kind of weird, but whatever. He can sing. He's all right. Yeah. Um, Do you know what Pippin's song is actually called? Um, doesn't matter. It's no, I don't actually. But uh, uh, yeah, so there's that one. Uh, I'm not sure if I wasn't sure if this technically qualifies as a musical, and we totally do to intend to do a standalone yeah. episode about musicals. Um, mm-hmm. I I figured because it's uh, it wasn't made into a musical until after the release of the film, it technically qualifies. But one of my favorites is "Falling Slowly" by. Uh, Glenn Hansard and Marquette Erglova. Uh, it won an Oscar for Best Original Song, uh, which was weird because Once is a totally um, obscure, uh, low-budget film uh, from Ireland uh, that was made uh, on a budget of $100,000. And uh, a great uh, film, uh, kind of not, not like a non-romance, like an anti-romance film. So if you don't like romance films, but you kind of like, you know, nice kind of sentimental, you know, slice of life type films, then uh, Once is a 
is a great film and it's you know but there's some, some amazing music in the entire soundtrack mm-hmm. um and then uh as i mentioned before the the gary jules version of mad worlds is unironically good do not at me okay all right is how is that which version is that is that one that i would know it's the it's the depressing piano chords one okay it's not the one in donnie darko no it is the one in donnie darko oh it is okay yeah okay because that that song was originally by tears for fears but they did a cover of it too so that it was i knew that one was a cover i didn't know if this was a separate cover from that cover yeah but But it, it is that one yeah but the because of the the setting of Donnie Darko, it takes place, I believe, in the 1980s or in mm-hmm. the late 80s, early 90s, something like that. Uh, I know because like they're talking about Bush and Dukakis or something like that. I'm pretty sure that was in the 90s. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So the like it's uh, so it's referential to the um, the setting of the film, but it's a cover that's done in in a modern context you know it doesn't have the the bombast of tears for fears and i like it i think it's a um a beautiful song i remember the first time i ever saw it being used was in a, a gears of wars trailer and i still remember that trailer. oh yeah I yeah thought, i remember that yeah i thought it was i don't really think well i've played used. gears of war but i remember that trailer yeah i think i played yeah i played a little, a little gears of war you dabbled more like tears of war <laughs> <laughs> we're like secretion of liquid from the eyes of war. yeah yeah, in case you needed uh, Chad Warden translated for white people. <laughs> I wanted to talk a bit about TV music. I know we we really, uh, we went in on The Mandalorian, so I won't really touch on that anymore. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite uh, musical t- television music experiences is with the television series Westworld. Um. Also, Westworld was a movie in the 70s where I don't know anything about the music from it, Yeah. Um, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Westworld, the TV show. So I think that, uh, so a lot of the music, um, so I'll start with the main theme of the music, or the main, ah, the theme song of the show. Um, It's uh, got a lot of piano and stuff and very uh, uh, melodic, and the visuals that, that go along with it in the show's opening sequence are extremely... Uh, uh, beautiful and provoking of of the themes of the show. And there's this recurring theme throughout the show of things being played on a player piano, mm-hmm. um, which is certainly uh, reminiscent of uh, the Western times, as well as the automation of machines and robots like the show. So having a player piano is certainly a, a, a perfect representation of that kind of... of, uh, of recurring theme um the main uh uh i get uh from when i've listened to the soundtrack it's called sweetwater which is the main town of westworld but it's that main (laughs) player piano uh melody that goes on through the show um where then that uh it turns into this big orchestral big orchestral sweeping thing that goes on um which is really awesome that it turns from that uh almost ragtimey piano into this giant orchestral thing. I think it's done really well. And it certainly fits with uh, the whole Western uh, feel of the show. And then there's a lot of pop songs that are um, that they do covers of. Uh, a lot of them are done as covers for the player piano. Uh, one of the ones that I 
immediately think of is Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden. They do an awesome player piano cover of that. Yeah. Um, during the big uh, um, shootout scene in the town, they have like a cover of uh, Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones where it's um, it's not so much player piano, but that one, it's, it's a lot more strings and um, orchestral stuff. Um, uh, they do, uh, it's a Radiohead song that they do in the last episode of the first season where it's, um, it's like exit music for a film, something like that. I don't know what yeah. it's called. Exit music for a film. That's right. Oh, okay. I did know what it's called then. Uh, and they, they, it's a really awesome cover that they do for that. Like that's an, uh, like, I don't know Radiohead. I don't, I haven't listened to much of their stuff. I know that song. It's been used in a few different, uh, TV and film that I've seen. But it's a really cool cover that they do for Westworld, and it really, uh, it really makes that a kick-ass ending for the season. Funny fact, uh, funny fact, fun fact about that particular song. Actually, it was on Radiohead's biggest album, which is OK Computer, but it was actually written for uh, one of the more modern adaptations of Romeo and Juliet, and it was actually um, originally featured on that. So I just thought that was interesting because we were talking yeah. about songs written particularly for motion pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the the music for Westworld is done, his name is, I believe it's pronounced Ramin Jawadi. I think it's Ramin Jawadi. Well, it's almost Ramin like a V Javad. sound. Okay. Um, and he does, he also does the music for Game of Thrones, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's done some music for other stuff, but those are the two big ones that I know of. He's a good composer, like really good. Like he knows he what he's is very doing. good. Yeah. If if there's a show where he's composing for it, uh, I generally will probably want to watch that show. Yeah. He he comes very much from the the Hans Zimmer school of music. I think he actually originally um was one of the proteges of Hans Zimmer for a little while. I know that he graduated oh, yeah. from Berkeley or something like that, but then he went on to work at um Hans Zimmer's music production company, um, which I don't think, I'm not sure if that currently exists. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, I know that uh, they they did collaborate uh, on several things. We haven't mentioned in this podcast so far Danny Elfman as a composer. Um, yeah. I don't particularly <laughs> like Danny Elfman. Really? Uh, well, he's okay. It's just when I hear Danny Elfman, I hear Danny Elfman. Yeah, yeah, sense. true, true. Fair enough. <laughs> And I, I'm not a huge Tim Burton fan for the most part, and he Me does a neither. lot of Tim Burton yeah. movies. I don't really fuck with Tim Burton. Yeah. Um, but he does the music for The Simpsons, and I love The Simpsons. The the main theme of The Simpsons, I grew up with it. It's ingrained in my memory. Uh, and all of those little... Like little uh, interludes in the episodes, he does all those. Yeah, those, like, that. those little cadences where you transition between one scene and another, it's like... Yeah. That that this like ridiculous like upper extension chord and shit and you're like what does that what is that yeah, yeah. um but I also want to talk about Futurama another Matt Groening TV show music not by Danny Elfman in this one um mm-hmm. I believe the music composer's name Christopher Ting um so the the main theme of the episode, uh, main theme song of the of uh, Futurama um is actually very much based on an existing song by. Uh, an artist called Pierre Henry. Um, and the song, I think, is called like Psych Rock or something like that. I can't, it's like a, it might be Psyche Rock because it's a French uh, pronunciation of it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's so, 
based on that song that I'm surprised that I don't see that guy's name in the credits of Futurama. Like, huh. I think it's it's so based on that song that if they didn't pay that guy a royalty every time they used it, they should have been. Interesting. Um, oh, I wait, th- I, think I, I think I know what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like yeah, I this sa- was a big we've thing listened for to a it one, on a visit where you came over one time. Yeah. And it's so based on that. It has to uh, be the same thing. There's no way it's Like not. I've listened to commentary tracks of Futurama and they talk about how it's based on that track, but it is so based on it that I I think there should have been a lawsuit. But I love both the original and the uh the Futurama theme. Well, they could just like pay their publisher. They they don't Yeah, have that, to, like, I'm, sue. I'm, that's why I'm wondering if they did, because his name isn't in the credits or anything. Like they didn't say that theme oh, by really? Christopher Ting and Pierre Henry. It just says Christopher Ting. Oh. That's why I was wondering about it. But with uh Futurama as well, um, because uh I was uh uh at some point I was watching the first Futurama movie, uh Bender's Big Score, which we t- actually mentioned briefly in the last episode because they do a cover of Thirtieth Century Man. Yeah, uh, by Scott Walker. Um but that movie, uh, I, when I was watching it recently, I realized that a big difference between the movie and the TV show is that the TV show has a lot of uh, sort of uh, the music used in the TV show is big orchestral stuff. And the movie is very, uh, it's like remixes of the main theme of Futurama, as well as uh, a couple original things, as well as music that's probably entirely done uh, with MIDI instruments or synthesizers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like that's where the movie doesn't measure up to the TV show. I really like the movie, but I uh, and and it was a straight to DVD film, so I think that they would have had the big orchestral uh, hits that they had in the TV show if they had the budget for it, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I think a lot of it was done with synth- synthesizers and things like that. Um, but I think that. Uh, uh, well, that's all I really had to say about the Futurama music, but I, I, I dig Futurama for music. Cool. Yeah, that's another show that I have to get into. Simpsons as well. I totally. You haven't watched Futurama? Uh, no, no. I've like I've watched it periodically. Same thing with the mm. Simpsons. Like it's not like I've never seen it before, but like I have I haven't like sat down and watched the entire series from beginning to end. It's like one of those series where you can like, you know, just tune in whatever episode. Like you don't yeah. need to like. There's no arcs or anything like that. You don't have to invest your time and energy into like you know watching it sequentially but um so i have a few um i have this opinion of television uh that television will eventually surpass film as the dominant medium or at least the dominant medium of you know of storytelling television are you also including like series you mean series like not like streaming service series would be in there yeah well rather than a single feature length film serial television serial stories yeah i don't necessarily mean like broadcast television i mean like uh you know uh web series or yeah any kind of serial stories um and uh it's funny actually i think uh uh robert mckee the uh screenwriting doctor agrees with me so (laughs) Uh, anyway um the uh okay I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I was just randomly watching a video of him, and he was like, uh, "He's like, I, I agree think with I think television is going to become the dominant form of me. I'm like, y- you're right about that. You no, are. I think it was. I was actually the other way around. Where confirmation. You bias. saw that video, and he said, "You know what? This 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 kid, Aiden. I really dig his opinion about television. Well, that's basically what happened. 
You can't say that it didn't happen. <laughs> it's behind the scenes footage, okay? Uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, I'll just discuss some of my favorite uh, original television scores. Uh, Lay them down. Uh, the, uh, the Twin Peaks by Angelo Badalamenti. Uh, like probably my all-time favorite uh, TV score by far. Um, mm. Never heard of it. You've never heard of the score? <laughs> never heard <laughs> of the Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. No, I've... I've <laughs> I might have sent somebody messages uh, asking them if they wanted to watch Twin Peaks a million times. It must not um, have been me. Yeah, you, I don't think you. Uh, I don't. Also, think I wouldn't watch it by now. You were never in those DMs, so like, uh, yeah, I I knew that uh, you've probably already seen the entire show and you know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to the music. So anyway, yeah. Nope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway. uh, there's this show called uh, uh, Double Summits, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Pair of Mountaintops, something yeah. like that. Yeah, it has similar music. Yeah. But um, yeah, so uh, like probably the uh, a very interesting opening theme with, you know, Rhodes keyboard and kind of reverby guitar. And most of the score, uh, probably due to budgetary reasons, being uh, kind of synth strings. So it kind of has like Twin Peaks. The entire show almost uh, feels like a a satirical take on the the soap opera genre of television. Uh, in that uh, it portrays itself as that kind of uh, you know very kind of idyllic uh, setting, but within that setting you get all of the kind of darker aspects of the town that are that are hidden within it. And the music really kind of brings that out. Um, there's a lot of influence from jazz. Um, Angelo Badalamenti, uh, there's a lot of, has a lot of jazz influence in all of his scores throughout the entire series, whether it's just the original two series that premiered in uh, 90 and 91 to the uh, recent return. There's a lot of uh, uh, kind of uh, ambient drones and kind of, the use of integrated sound design in order to give you that uh, kind of eerie atmosphere. Um, and, and so it's kind of a strange confluence of influences, but it's, uh, it's really beautiful. It's probably the, like by far, in my opinion, the best uh, television score. Um, next to that would probably be the score to uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion by Shiro Segitsu. Uh, Shirozugitsu has done a few uh, like big anime shows like Attack on Titan, which I don't really fuck with. Um, I, I don't really have any problem with the music, but the show is just kind of over the top. You know, Genesis Evangelion, or EVA as it's abbreviated to, uh, is uh, a, a great series, probably like one of my favorite series as well. Uh, it has one of my favorite opening theme songs. In fact, I'd say it's probably my number one favorite opening theme song. Uh, you know, Twin Peaks does have a uh, great opening theme song and probably the consistently best score, in my opinion. But uh, as for theme songs, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion is uh, it's called Cruel Angel's Thesis, the uh, theme song. Um, but there's a lot of influence uh, on this score from uh, lounge music, uh, bossa nova, um, you know, classic, uh, you know, action films. Uh, it's uh, it's not necessarily anachronistic it it invokes a lot of elements from like classic hollywood almost uh mm -hmm. you can see that there's some reference to you know bossa nova music maybe a little bit of uh, henry mancini um but um 
the uh, the action moments are these as this fusion of the of the orchestra, which is what you would expect, but also uh, a more use of a um, of a smaller kind of chamber horn section, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, you can see that there's a little more of a jazzy tendency in the throughout the entire soundtrack, which kind of sets it apart from a lot of contemporary uh, anime action series. Anyway, uh, X Files by Mark Snow, um, mm -hmm. definitely a huge, um, you know, a very recognizable opening theme. Uh, Mark Snow uh, throughout the score to uh, X Files. Exact, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, a lot of like very kind of uh, you know dissonant, um, challenging, you know, music, very rem reminiscent of a lot of 20th century classical music. Mm -hmm. But, uh, uh, so that's, that's kind of why I like it. Uh, like you mentioned, The Mandalorian, great original score. Mm -hmm. um, you've already kind of delved deeply into that. Uh, my favorite uh, of recent uh, television uh, is Nicholas Bertel's score for the HBO series Succession which has only gone two seasons and already has one of my favorite television scores of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, it occasionally blends hip-hop with um, classical music in the stricter sense, as in classical music that is actually um, more, of a, more reminiscent of the actual classical period. But um, uh, there's a lot of influence from, you know, uh, you can see those like, you know, Mozart and Beethoven, like actual classical composers. Yeah. Um, the the opening theme uh, actually uses a kind of like driving classic hip hop break, uh, which is really cool, along with an instrumental section that includes uh, full strings and a piano as well. And uh, I don't know, the whole uh, show's like soundtrack is just so perfectly theatrical um, it's up there almost with any film score. And uh, mm -hmm. in my opinion, it's probably one of the best things that Nicholas Bertel has done yet. Yeah. I've only seen a couple episodes of Succession. I remember yeah. the, the main opening theme being really cool, though. Yeah. Succession is kind of like slow in the first season, and then it gets mm -hmm. really good towards the end. And then the second season is just like consistently like it slaps. Yeah. I'll have to jump back into it. Yeah. But that's everything for TV shows for me. That's all we got. That's all she wrote. Yeah. Fuck. My voice. Like, oh my God. I've been singing a little bit, like I mentioned before, and now my voice is just totally fucked. Fuck. Fuck. Shall we wrap her up? Yeah. Wrap it up. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Spin This Podcast podcast where Sam Dowd and Claire talk about podcasts or music about what in the podcast where we spit these things and then then you've been spinning with us. I've I've uh, I've been Sam Dow. And I'm in Glare. And you will you you've been spinning currently, but you will continue and spin with us in the next episode. Stay away from cocaine, kids. Yeah. Yeah.